Hello, listeners, and welcome to Deacon's Pod. This is Paul Snatchko. I'm the Director of Marketing and Communications for the Paul's Fathers. It is my honor to serve as the producer of Deacon's Pod. Deacon Dennis, Deacon Tom, and Deacon Drew are on summer vacation this week, so I'm joining you just for a few moments to introduce today's installment of the pod. Today, the Deacons will be speaking with author, teacher, and translator Carmen Acevedo Butcher about her dynamic new translation of the spiritual classic Practice of the Presence of God by the 17th century Carmelite brother, Lawrence of the Resurrection. Before I turn you over to that great conversation, I just wanted to say a word of thanks to all of you Deacon's pod listeners on behalf of all of us at the Paulus Fathers. Last week, we crossed over the milestone of 10,000 downloads since the debut of Deacon's pod in June of last year. This would not have been possible without your support. Thank you to all of you who have spread the word about the podcast to your family members and friends. And thank you to all of you who have left reviews of the podcast on your podcast players. Those are so valuable. Please don't stop these efforts. We would love to reach even more ears of listeners who are interested in the intersection of faith and life and who are interested in hearing about ways to give hope to people on the threshold those considering coming back to church after a time away, and those thinking of no longer practicing the faith. On behalf of the Paulist Fathers, I also want to thank Deacon Dennis, Deacon Tom, and Deacon Drew for their work on the pod. We are very grateful for the initiative and the creativity they have brought to this audio media ministry. We also want to say a huge thank you to David Dalt, our technical producer and editor. David does so much to make these installments sound great. And now, without further delay, here are the Deacons and Carmen Acevedo Butcher. Welcome to Deacons Pod. I'm Deacon Dennis. Say hello to my co-conspirators, Paulist affiliate Deacons, Deacon Drew and Deacon Tom. Hello, this is Deacon Drew. Hello, this is Deacon Tom. Today we have the pleasure and honor of speaking to Dr. Carmen Acevedo Butcher, an internationally acclaimed speaker, author, educator, and poet. She is also a translator who has won an Author of the Year Award from the Georgia Writers Association for her translation of Cloud of Unknowing, which is a Shambhala Pocket Library 2018 publication. She has also translated other medieval authors, including Julian of Norwich, and Hildegard of Bingen. We will be discussing her latest book, The Well-Known Spiritual Guide by Brother Lawrence of the Resurrection, Practice of the Presence, a revolutionary translation issued by Broadleaf Books 2022. Dr. Butcher is currently teaching at the University of California, Berkeley, in the college writing programs. Dr. Butcher, it is such a pleasure to welcome you to our show. Thank you all for having me. I'm delighted to be here. So let's jump right into your book, Practice of the Presence. Now, when I say your book, I call it your book because it is a revolutionary translation. It's right on the cover, but it truly is from what I understand. Is your first profession as a translator? How would you describe yourself? That gets to the heart of everything. So thank you for asking that. Sure. I would say I have started out translating and it's an embodied task for me. And so really it touches every part of my life. Teacher, wife, mother, friend. Also, I write poetry and it all comes together in the translating. 
So I guess I would describe myself as a seeker and someone who loves words. That's probably sums it up the most. And I'm interested in translation because love is at the very heart of translation, like trying to build bridges between perhaps people who've never realized they have a lot in common. Right. And this book, which has been translated many times in the past, The Practice of the Presence, is one that you basically spent quite a bit of your time on in in terms of how you looked at Brother Lawrence and how you looked at the world. That's so true. And in fact, this is a book I started really by the Spirit at the beginning of the pandemic. So it began during that time of high stress and collective death, and my students had relatives dying. So one of the things that I do when I translate is I come at it as if I know nothing about the person and nothing about the text, because I want to see it as it is, as much as possible. Now, we know that's not possible, but I do want to take myself aside and let Brother Lawrence speak. And what happened during that time of translating him, it was about a year and a half from start to finish, was that translating him was entering his calmness. And so that was how it worked. And every day, because we had lockdowns here in California, There were birds on the street, no cars on the street, and birds singing instead. And I would enter into this calmness before I would go teach. So I would translate and then go teach. It was all woven together. And Brother Lawrence's calmness, you are very wise to point out his book has come through the centuries. I think it's because of his calmness and his intimate relationship with God. Well, he... When one gets into his book, he constantly makes that point that it's all about God, no matter what he's doing in his life. And he is focusing on God. He says it differently than that. But that's essentially it. He focuses on God. And if he's in a conversation like we are now, apparently he developed the ability to continually talk to God while he was talking to the other person in front of him. That takes a lot of work, I know. That's what that's one of the major problems I think we have in our society, that when we are talking, we are thinking about the next thing we're going to say instead of listening to how you respond to us. Brother Lawrence apparently could listen because he responded in the letters and things in the book, and yet he continually carried on this conversation with God. I like to think that it was his soul talking to God. In one of Paul's letters, he talks about, if you can't pray, don't worry about it. The Holy Spirit will pray for you. And I see a connection there. Is that the way I should look at this, or is it different than that for Brother Lawrence? Oh, no, I think you're right exactly in what he did. And just as soon as you said that, I thought to myself, please help me know how to enter into this conversation with these awesome deacons. So I know what you're talking about. It's a lot to do to stay in this constant conversation with love. But I do think What he's trying to say is that the ordinary materials of our everyday lives, like me opening up email or me meeting with a student or me washing dishes or me taking the car to get the tires rotated, all those things that just come up or me grieving someone who has a health issue in my family or something like that. These are all the material for the practice of the presence because Brother Lawrence goes so far as to say, 
you may notice that this is all I ever talk about. <laughs> he says, and you're right in one of his letters. He's, and you're right, right. He says, he says this is the main practice that every person who follows Jesus should be doing, he says. He believes in it that fully, and he gives us all these tips. Let's just stop there for a second and tell the listeners who Brother Lawrence was so they can have appreciation. Because you hear Brother Lawrence and you think, well, yeah, he's in a monastery. He's got all day, nothing to do. I got kids. I got work. So would you back up a little bit, please, doctor, and give us a little overview of Brother Lawrence's situation in life, his day-to-day, his historical context, so that people can appreciate what this man is saying? Oh, yes, Dennis, this is one of the reasons I love Brother Lawrence. So he came into the world as Nicolas Hermann. So we might say Nicholas Herman, Nicholas with an H. And he came into a non-privileged life in a day in 1614, when if you weren't born into nobility, then you had pretty much nothing, no hope for advancement. And that was about 98% of the people in France. He was actually someone who then decided, what do I do? Maybe I should go into the military. So that's what he did as a young person. He went into the military. He fought in the Thirty Years' War. He was a teenager, maybe 19 or so. And he pretty quickly ran into trouble. He was caught as a, became a prisoner of war by German troops. And then he went into battle. And then he got free of that through his bravery, as his friend Joseph says. And then he was wounded in battle. And that meant from about the age of 20 until his 70s, he spent over 50 years limping and in extreme pain. He got captured and they accused him of being a spy, correct? Yes. And he basically said, no, I'm not a spy. And they said, well, we're going to hang you. And he said, go ahead. Yeah. I'm not afraid of you hanging me because I know that I've told you the truth. Something to that effect. I'm paraphrasing. And then they let him go. Yes. Okay. So that actually, so Joseph pauses on this in his writings and you're right to point this out. He says that in another profession, this would be called his great bravery would have been heralded. And so I think this is an overlooked, I'm glad you bring this up, an overlooked part of Brother Lawrence is his absolute fearlessness. Now he's humble, but he also is, yeah, I'm not a spy. If you want to kill me, go ahead. And they saw his bravery and let him go. Yep, that's it. Well, I just think another, I think the whole story is fascinating and it really tells us who he is. But I also think it's fascinating that they let him go. Now, I know I'm looking at this through the lens of this century and not that century. And maybe they did that all the time. Maybe they captured people and said, ah, he's not who we thought he was and let him go. But I still think it's a really interesting part of the story. And this is before he was Brother Lawrence. This is when he was Herman. Yeah, exactly. Nick, as I think of him. Nick. Yeah. <laughs> yes, Tom. No, I was just going through that story because his life is amazing from that young adult, 18 years old, where he has that experience, that presence of God's providence that really, really set him on his journey. But in going through his life and the narratives that, that you've spoken about, Doctor, I listed a couple of things like he was a disabled war vet, right? With a, a leg injury that come from a musket ball made of lead. So that, it's something that stays with you with a tremendous amount of pain. It was intended to do that. He was a POW. 
He was raised in poverty. He lacked an education. A failed, a, a religious hermit, a cook for the friars. He didn't like cooking, and yet he did it for 25 years with a busted leg. A self-dubbed clumsy oaf, a survivor of religious wars, suffered anxiety, probably post-traumatic stress, as we know, that certainly attended to a military. A man often in physical agony from his injuries. Not your ordinary person to create the kind of mystical work that that he created in this practice of the presence where he belonged to God in his entirety, even doing the mundane work that he never liked with an injury. Teresa of Avila, John of the Cross, we understand that they came from privilege. But this guy was ordinary. And I think that speaks, I think, volumes to us today when we're living in times that are equally challenging in, in many ways for many people. And the practice of the presence is something that we would desperately need to help us through our lives today. And he speaks volumes to us as a real person, not as the bishop, not as the king, but as someone who's working diligently to grow in that presence of God within him and sharing that with us. So I, I think that background speaks volumes to us of our or, his ordinariness. And you didn't even get, we interrupted Dr. Butcher. So we haven't even gotten to where he starts actually being the right. brother, right. as yeah. opposed to what? Let's get him into Brother Lawrence now. Or is there? Have we got well, just more before to go? you do that? One one little input, Doctor. Would you tell everybody who Joe? You keep referring to Joseph. Tell yeah. his yeah. friend Joseph. Tell people who his friends Joseph was, and then you can pick well, up. Uh, yeah. That comes after he becomes a brother. But whatever. Go ahead. Go ahead, Doctor. Y'all have <laughs> given me so many good ideas. So Joseph of Beaufort was his friend who was about 20 years younger than him. He was a Parisian priest. He was more from the, quote, rising middle class because his father had been a merchant. But he was very someone who was interested in helping the poor. And Joseph is really the one why we have Brother Lawrence's writings today, because he preserved them. And I did want to go back to one more thing that Tom said so eloquently, and that is that Brother Lawrence, yes, came from nothing like about 98% of the people of his day. And then he chose the discalced Carmelites and he took a vow of poverty and dedicated himself to beg for alms to support the monastery and also to support the poor. So he is an extraordinary, ordinary person. Yeah. yeah. And what, I, there were like a hundred friars in there? there it was yep, no small about a hundred. Yeah. yeah. So that, and I like what Dennis pointed out that he's, or no, maybe it was you, Tom, that he's cooking for these brothers and there are a hundred of them. So it's not like a dinner party. <laughs> this it's like is, a restaurant. He's running a restaurant. <laughs> Fast foods. Yeah. yeah. And he's not like going, oh, I really love this. You know, mm. cooking was kind of women's work. And also he just didn't like it. The word used in the text is aversion, literally meaning turn away from. And so he didn't know how to do it. And he wasn't interested in it. And he limped and was in, as you pointed out about that lead ball in the weaponry, he was in severe pain his whole life. Standing on his feet all day, cooking and cleaning. And I would say that's about right for the church. I don't like it. I have no talent. I have no interest. Yeah, that's your job. We do that all the time. Just for the historic, from a lead thing, a military round today would go through your tumble around and pierce and do tremendous damage. But that lead ball would would splatter literally and just crush everything that was in its way. So you can imagine those bones were just, however they healed, to be able to walk after a musket, a lead ball would be an act of God 
Absolutely. I'm glad you say that, Tom, because one of the things that strikes me about his suffering theology is the fact that he didn't have analgesics, really. Correct. And so yeah. that's something to keep in mind. What do you do then? Yeah. yeah. You learn to embrace the suffering, but he apparently was able to do that and, do and talk to a, God about that. <laughs> so then he developed, if I can use the word develop, this practice. Did that happen after he came to the Carmelites or while he was with the Carmelites? Or do we have any historical way of knowing? And I understand that almost everything we know about him is in the book that you've given us. Do we have any way of knowing how he developed it over what period of time? Or is it something that he just did as a brother? How did that happen? I mean, that's a really good question, Drew. And I would say Tom started us out with thinking about this because he did at the age of 18, before he entered the military or the monastery, Nicholas then, right? Nicholas, he had this moment in front of a tree in the wintertime that was without its leaves. And he had this, quote, mystical moment where all of a sudden he felt a rush of the love of God. And he knew that the leaves were going to come back onto the tree and it never left him. So I would really say a lot of things we have on record started then. But one of the things that I love about Brother Lawrence is the fact that he developed this practice Partly, I think, under the influence of Teresa of Avila, right? Because right. of her prayer, the way she talks about prayer and teaches prayer. But also that he had a dark night of the soul when he entered the monastery in his mid-20s that lasted for 10 years. And during that time, and this is where his story resonates with my own and my walk through chronic depression for many decades. Thankfully, not now, but for many decades, he turned to love, to God during this time of real, like Tom said, sounds like chronic, complex post-traumatic stress disorder. So CPTSD Mm -hmm. even. He turned to God and had conversations ongoingly with him. And he says during conversations, he would say things like, I need your help. I can see him saying things like, I've got to make the soup today. I don't want to make the soup. How do I do this? And also, I feel I'm damned and going to hell. These are all from the book. And then he would have moments where I think he would say to God, thank you for helping me figure out the soup. Help me know what to do next. And then he had moments of gratitude in nature. Thank you for the beauty of nature because he loved nature very much. And so during this time, he heard crickets. (laughs) So he's doing, he's in pain. He's in the monastery after trying all these other things, the valet, the being the lackey, the failing as a hermit being injured as a soldier, being a POW. And he tried all of these things in prayer and nothing's really working, but he kept at it. And he developed this conversation with love that he said after about 10 years of being faithful to this conversation with God, he's developed a peace and he shares that word with Teresa of Avila. He became more accustomed to it. It became a habit. And one of you said, then the prayer starts, I think maybe it was Jidru, the prayer started praying in him right? at all times. So right. it was developed in darkness, like photography, right? It developed in darkness. So I okay. really love the fact that this came out of his need for healing. And it came when he felt he was experiencing hell. That's the word that's used. And he also says he was looking back to his youth. And he looked at his youth with horror is the word and that he had many things he needed to atone for. So it's not just 
the experiences, things that happened to him, but however he conceived of it, it was also things that he needed to atone for, which I think we can all relate to. And that word practice, again, is indicative of this does not happen overnight. This is a lifelong journey of just being in, in God's presence and just being aware of that, whatever uh, situation you're in. It, yeah, it's, that's a challenge for us today in the world of instant gratification. Well, where what we he said results. in one of his letters, what he said in one of his letters, no one can be suddenly holy. Yeah. Yeah. And I think he was, he was advising patients to, I believe it was one of the nuns he was writing to, advising patients to her. You have to just keep doing this and keep putting yourself in this position and praying and whatever, and then you will see results. And that describes what you just told us, Dr. Butcher, about his own life, about how he got to where he was. No one can suddenly be holy which is a real downer for me, but okay, I'll just keep working on it. <laughs> You're running out of runway, that, that, Skippy. I don't know if you noticed. Better take off quick. <laughs> exactly. Now, the thing about, about the holiness, the everyday holiness that this man lived in his kitchen reminds us of, which is something we all need to hear because we all think life is instant pudding, every aspect of it, and we're angry when it's not. But our founder, Isaac Hecker, who's up for sainthood, right now, of the Paulist Fathers, he held up St. Joseph as the great model because he's, he was, so he's 130 years ago, Hecker, and it's the 19th century America, bustling building, industrial age, everything is happening. And he's just, this is, if people are going to be holy in America, it's going to have to be like Joseph. They're not going to be desert fathers. They're not going to be in monasteries or whatever. And he used Joseph in one of his famous sermons as a model of a person, a lay person with a life who, you know, yet was achieved the heights of sanctity. And he's doing the same thing. I, I think that people have to understand, they have to get beyond the brother stuff and realize that this was a busy man living in difficult times, much more difficult times than we're living in, at least in the United States, with the 30-year war and, and a society of rigid hierarchy, where if you didn't win the birth lottery, you were pretty much out of the game from the get-go. And this guy is now a lay brother, not a priest even. He's a lay brother in the kitchen, and he is working like a crazy man on a bad leg and whatever else he's got going on. It's not a glorious thing. And he develops, amidst all that and everyday business, he develops this mystical practice which really the key the listeners need to understand is anyone can do this that decides they want to do this. Anyone. And, and that's what Brother Lawrence kept saying and what his friend Joseph, Father Joseph, was trying to tell the world that this is not for the elite. This, anybody can do this. And it's really quite an interesting thing, and it really challenges all our ideas of what mysticism is or who's, who can have it. It's a very democratic approach that this is for all the baptized. This is for anybody that wants to take the time to, to do this. I wonder if this would be the time, Doctor, if you could enlighten us a little bit or enlighten our listeners. We've all read this book, and I think we're talking about we all know what these spiritual maxims are, but can you give us a little taste of what he really talked about? What were his spiritual maxims? So he says in his spiritual maxims that he wrote down with quill pen, he says, the first thing you need is simplicity of life. So simplify, simplify, as Thoreau said. Give up those things you don't need. Yeah, okay, give up the things you don't need. And then he says, very like the cloud of unknowing, one of the things that 
we need to do is to come away as often as we can from the creations of the world and our engagement in it to engage with, have conversation with, praise, interact with love or God or however someone conceives of divinity. So those two things, he says, we need to come away no matter. And here's the thing of what Dennis was just talking about, no Mm -hmm. matter how brief. So he's saying this needs to happen in recreation, in, yes, conversations we're having now to return even, which is, as you said, tricky a little bit, Drew. Mm -hmm. But he's saying, so come away and dedicate. You just really need, he said, intention. So dedicate yourself. So here's what encourages me about his approach is that I remember being young and wanting to have this peace and wanting to have this ceaseless prayer. I mean, I heard a preacher once say, pray without ceasing. And I was young and that grabbed me. And there was just so, there were so many thoughts. I had the monkey mind and I was so without peace. And Brother Lawrence says, just start right there. It's not Mm -hmm. like we're waiting until we feel some peace and then we can jump in. He says, I felt I was in hell when I started. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing he says is just keep returning to love. And he says, because most people who try this that I've ever met feel a little bit guilty when they forget. Oh, it's been several days and I haven't practiced the presence. That's a mark on my card. He says, when you forget, it's not a problem. Just return to love and love's glad that you're back. And then he says, but why would you leave love anyway? Because if a friend came to visit, wouldn't you visit with them? And God is here to visit with you. So he puts it in relational terms. He sounds very much like a Richard Rohr or someone. He puts it in lover, relational, friendship terms of, of course, you would want to do this. And it's if I haven't called my mother, I usually call my mother once a day. If I haven't called her, when I call her the next time, she's like, oh, sweetie, good to hear from you. It's like, God's not like going, how come you didn't call me? Right. Like, <laughs> it is a practice. You have to get in the habit, yeah. as you said earlier. And what Lawrence did, what Brother Lawrence did, essentially, was the trigger. Because there's always, so in my, and I'd be interested in what you think of this, Doctor, but in my understanding of where the lineage of Brother Lawrence is, like this thing he's telling us about would be, if you were to look it up on the internet and you'd want to know more about it, it, the spiritual practice would be recollection, is what the traditional term. And that means pulling yourself together, stop being scattered, come back to the center of yourself to recollect yourself. And of course, as Christians, we believe that we are in a Trinitarian force field. We are, we have the Holy Spirit inside of us from baptism. We are baptized into Christ. And as Paul says, and Christ is in God, your life is hid with Christ and God. So, so we're like Russian nesting dolls. You got God in you, you're in God, you're in another layer of God. You, the force is with you, okay? So if the force is with you, that's what you center around. So you come back to that and you worship God who's with you, in you, Emmanuel, God with us, not up there, out there, Peter Pan, second star to the right and straight on the morning. That is not a Christian view. God is here and we are the temples of that. So if you know that, you recollect, you pull yourself, your distractions, your worries, your frustrations, and you come back and you just pay attention. You recognize, you acknowledge, 
God is here. He's close to me in my own breath, as Augustine says. So you have this thing of recollection. Now, that can be from everybody's seen this where someone, you'll be in a situation and someone you're talking at a, at a dinner party or whatever, and someone says, all right, we're going to say grace, and everybody stops talking, bows their head, is silent. Well, that's a form of physical recollection. You have stopped all this out and you've come in. Now, there are many triggers. They, uh, the thing about recollection and forgetting is there's always a trigger in the different approaches to make me recollect. You have the Desert Fathers did it with Scripture. They would constantly, like a mantra, repeat a line of Scripture, the most famous being the Jesus Prayer, Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, right? And then you have, as you know, from the cloud, you have a prayer word where it's just one word, and you put all your attention in one word, and you use that word. So if you're distracted, you answer the distraction with your sacred word, like love. It could be Jesus. It could be Abba. It could be anything, but that's your word. And you just use that to block out the other stuff and to put your intention on God. What Lawrence does that's different is he offers us a different trigger. And that trigger is your life. So it's pretty hard to forget. So he's saying that as you do stuff, you don't stop and do some big, long thing. You just in your mind say, God, help me with this. God, be with me. Oh, thank you, Lord, for helping me. Okay, God, we got to go make the soup now. Whatever. Give me another stone for the soup, yeah. Yeah, whatever. So the point is, what's triggering you is your activity. Before I begin an activity, during the activity maybe, after, it's a quick word, it's a quick petition for help or a prayer of gratitude after the thing is over. Or in some cases, I think he just rolled his eyes at God. You know what I mean? It's just like you would do with a friend. You're like, you see this? Are you kidding me? This I got to do this now? Yeah, in the fiddler on the roof. Right. It can be very quick. <laughs> so he's offering us a different trigger for recollection. But what do you think? I think that's the most beautiful thing I've ever heard because that's absolutely true. And it's interesting also that if I can be a nerd for just a minute, I think I'm among friends here. Yeah, we're nerding out. Go right ahead. <laughs> Decollect and Lexio have the same root. So it literally, like in Lexio Divina, our sacred reading, it has that same gathering together and paying attention, really. But yes, he's saying that. And one of the things I love about him is that he says experiment. Because often people ask me, so what's the right way to do this? And the right way to do this is to do it. He says, you would be surprised the things that are said in these brief conversations with God. I love, Dennis, how you said, because this is one of my favorites, is what do I do next? And I'm also very fond of the rolling of the eyes. I'm also very thankful that I can come to God and go, really? Mm -hmm. There's a freedom to it that's almost like a therapy session. So where like you can just go to God and go, so thank you so much that I can see today. Or it might also be, I have a student who doesn't have enough to eat. What am I supposed to do about that? And why does that even exist? Like, the, I think we forget sometimes that on the cross, Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I think what Brother Lawrence is saying is that everything is fair game for this. And one of the big parts of it is gratitude, though. He often emphasizes part of the practice of the presence is being grateful. So I see to go back to Tom saying how much Brother Lawrence did not like being in the kitchen, I see him often saying, thank you for helping me to be at peace here. Thank you for helping me figure out how to make a good soup. Because they say, Joseph said in one of the conversations, 
that in time, everybody who ate Brother Lawrence's food just tasted love. So he turned it into really a sacrament in a way. And the key to what you're saying, I think, is the title of the book, The Practice of the Presence. It doesn't matter what you're doing. If you are aware that God is with you, you are practicing the presence, and the rest is entirely secondary at best, whether you're being grateful, whether you're asking for help. It's just this realization that in him we live and move and have our being, that truth. That's not poetry. That is the experience of the resurrected life that we have in baptism. This is it. This is why I'm here. I don't know what you guys are doing here, but I'm here for that peace that passes understanding all those things we talk about. Well, there's a reality to them. A lot of times we say these words, we hear these words. A guy like Lawrence is saying, no, you, this is a real thing. You can have eternal life, the gospel of John, whatever. But when you experience it, you know what it is. But the key is the practice. And again, practice makes perfect, right? So it's not like the perfection. It's the practice of just the presence, whether it's rolling your eyes or saying thank you or whatever, it's just sighing. It could be anything. If it's directed at God, you are practicing the presence. One, one, of the th one of the things I found fascinating, and doctor, please correct me if I misunderstood this in the book, but you're talking about no matter what you're doing, no matter what time of the day, you can do this practice. And he said, I think, even if you're praying. Yes. He, he interrupt your own prayer to remember yeah. that you are actually in the presence of God. Yes, isn't that good? You have to think about that. You have to think about, well, I was holding, that's why I was praying. But I think a lot of times what he's pointing out is when we are praying, we're talking to ourselves. Right. And we're not talking to God. And we're not listening. We're no, not in the presence. we're not listening. You wonder, God doesn't talk to me. Yeah. Well, shut up and let him. It's interesting, like St. Ignatius Loyola, when you do the spiritual exercises, the first thing before you do an exercise is you Take two steps in another direction from the place you're going to pray. So you, there's an embodiment, which is very Catholic, you know, that whole, no, we're praying through our body. We're not disembodied brains here. And we go over here away from the spot that will become sacred as we pray in it. And we take a moment and remember that we are in God's presence and ask him to help us to do this well. But the point is, the first step is, I'm not talking to myself. I'm not fulfilling a duty. I'm not going through the motion. I am standing in the presence of God. And, you know, and God doesn't go away. We do. See, that's the joke. He never goes away. Presence is easy. It's there. You just Your awareness of it is what we're talking about. So this thing that Drew's talking about is really insightful. Whenever you do it, before, during, or after the prayer, to remind yourself that, oh, no, God's really here. This is not like a pantomime I'm doing. This is the real deal. So I think that familiarity in language and expression just cast a big shadow on the intimacy that we have, the Abba aspect of God, that you're able to talk to God in the real language of what is happening right now, which in my Irish Catholic tradition used to be a lot of times in my family, like we used to hear the expression, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. And it, sometimes it was a prayer and other times it was get out of the way. Other times it was as close to a curse word as you could get away with. But yes. It was duck. Oh, yeah. Now, I don't want to get too far removed from helping our listeners understand a little bit about this book. So this book is your translation, which is a fantastic translation. One of the things I really like about this is you introduce every section of the book and you explain a little bit about what's going on and you talk about the language and how you got to certain words. Like earlier in the podcast, you said aversion. 
And you explain the French of that in your book and a few other places you do the same thing. I just think it's a wonderful aid to the reader. And I think it really lends a more mystical, spiritual presence to the book. And I just want to thank you out loud here on the podcast for doing that. Well, I think to your point, Joe, I remember from the book, I actually wrote a little note here, Doctor, about how the translation of Ensoy in itself ended up to be, you came across it really meant in foy, in faith. And the distinction that meant, just a little word just got my attention is that we're big into scripture and you, you read the translation from the Greek and you get one meaning. And we understand that, but you made it more relevant when you pointed out the distinction of in itself in faith. It's a quantum leap. In that those because words. one of the things I tried to do was look at the original text mm. with fresh right. eyes. So the te- the example you're talking about, Tom, the in foy looks like in soy, S-O-Y, because of the long S that looks like an F that they yep, use. Right, like that old-fashioned writing. Yeah. In foy means in faith, which is actually more likely what would have been said there. So I just tried to look at it with fresh eyes. So I want to tell you all, first of all, that this is a translator's dream. <laughs> all the comments that you're making. And one of the things I want to say, going back for just a minute, that I sure. loved how y'all talked about prayer being embodied. And also how he talked about, I think you said, Drew, he prayed while he was praying. So as a discalced Carmelite, he would have had two one-hour periods during the day that would have been dedicated to what Teresa of Avila would have said, this mental recollection or the prayer of quiet. And he says in a letter to a spiritual director, his one letter to a man who was a spiritual director, he says, I tried all the ways of prayer. And in the end, he says, even my two one-hour periods during the day just became practice of the presence. (laughs) So he went from doing this kind of structured prayer to just always returning to God in this kind of conversation. And so, yes, I. but I also think it's very good because I think we have our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We have a lot of scripted prayers which have their place. Right. But also, how many times are we thinking what's for lunch? which is normal too, because the mind does that. But he does say he preferred staying in the monastery and practicing the presence to even going on retreat. (laughs) Right. He says things like, what do I need? I don't understand why I got to do this. I've got God in the kitchen. Why am I going over here and stopping my, you know, like he said, he didn't need a spiritual director. He needed a confessor, but not a spiritual director. Right. But you would think he'd want to get out of the kitchen. uh, The kitchen uh, wasn't exactly like it is today. Imagine the old wood stoves and the downdrafts. It had to be smoky. It had to be dirty. Humping in the firewood. This This is with a bad leg. This is one of the differences between me and Brother Lawrence. Probably the only difference that I can think of right now is. Oh, I could make you a list, but go ahead. (laughs) He embraced suffering. He embraced it to the point where, if I understand this correctly, he did not suffer in his suffering. He found it to be a joy to be with God, that God gave him this ability to feel and that he knew that there must be a point to it. He just embraced it. I, I can I imagine probably saying, simplified like, okay, leg, let's get up and go get some more firewood. I know you're hurting, but we got work to do. Mm-hmm. I, I, it had to be mm-hmm. part of an uplifting experience because otherwise he would not have done it for 25 years. And so that's the only difference between me and Brother Lawrence. Right, I think there's others like Dennis yeah. said. Well, that would be, <laughs> to me, that's an example of, I can't even wrap my mind around that. I'm such a big weenie. But that to me is in the realm of what they call heroic virtue. 
or it's a level of mysticism beyond my comprehension, which would not be hard. A very low level would be beyond my comprehension too, now that I say it, but that's what to make saints of heroic virtue. It's, oh man, what, he's way beyond what I'd put up with or whatever. So I just want to inject one thing for our listeners because I want them to buy this book, if I may. We are nerding out. We are talking about a bunch of stuff. But for you, this is not a scholarly book, even though it is, if you want to get into the notes and stuff that we're getting into. Brother Lawrence is an easy book. It's a delightful book. It's a charming book. It is not going to break your brain. It is not high-level theology. It is just a winning book, and it's a short book, relatively speaking. So not to be put off by some of the weeds that we're nerding out into. That's all. Yeah, this is a book that if you're looking for a spiritual book to help you in any way whatsoever, go get this book. And it's the kind of book that I think, Dr. If I, get, I think I remember you in your introduction said, you don't have to read this book from front to back. Jump in anywhere. And that's what I was trying to talk about. It's got four or five sections, but each section are independent and yet dependent on each other because it's all about the same thing. And you can go back and read and say, oh, he said that there too. Oh, I get that. That letter repeats what was in the conversation. Oh, I understand. Everything y'all are saying is just making me so happy because I'm a translator, which means that I want everything to be both true and accessible. So I want it to be as true to Brother Lawrence as possible. So there are a lot of times when I show up at the computer before I translate and I'm like, help me with this. I also teach and I teach young people and I would like to offer them this wisdom because one of the things I love about Brother Lawrence is that Buddhists love him, Protestants, Catholics, people of no faiths, people who practice Stoicism. He is beloved by so many different people. So, so I, I appreciate that y'all are saying this is not a scholarly book. Oh my gosh, no, because that just make me throw up, to be quite honest. But what I also want to say is that the reason each section has got a little explanation, Drew, right. I'm glad you pointed that out, is because one of my readers said, I'm lost. Right. Yeah. <laughs> in the draft, in an early draft, they said, could you please, and this was a friend of mine who is a Rumi scholar. So she has a PhD in Persian literature. She's from Iran and she's Muslim. And she said to me, I'm lost. I love the Christian mystics, but can you help me find? Because one of the things about this manuscript is it was not made with 21st century readers in my, I hate to tell you, this book was made for the friends of Brother Lawrence. This manuscript was like the original recording. And then I tried to do some organizing with it, true to Brother Lawrence. So my friend said, could you please put a brief explanation before each section just so I can orient myself? That's why that happened. I think it's really great. I would say this, you say it's not a scholarly book, and I agree it's not a scholarly book. However, it's clearly written by a scholar. Right. But don't be scared. It's you, not you scary need, scholarly. It, it, needed to be, it needed to be written by someone who had your background, your expertise, your academic background, as well as your translation skills. As someone who reads fiction from, from Italians and Germans and relies on the translator, I loved this book. I'm telling you. It was great. You can give and, and the book to your mother. She can follow it. You know what I'm saying? It's an invitation to, to find that calmness that, that exudes 
Brother Lawrence's life. It's, I think it speaks I, to the people today. It's people on the margins of why would you come into a church or why would you get involved with any spiritualities because this is where you find the inner peace that we're meant to have. We're One more bit. little point about that. I think it was in a letter. He said, how can we ask for help, Brother Lawrence said, unless we are with God? His point is you have to be with God first. It'd be like asking my next-door neighbor to water my lawn without getting out of the chair and walking over and asking him in person. And I think that's such a, an important part about our communion and union with God, that if we're going to think that we want God to help us, we need to be with God. And Brother Lawrence's practice is a way to help us get there. Yeah, I would say, because for me, one of the things that I've dealt with in my life is anxiety, severe anxiety. So that's one reason that I love Brother Lawrence. And there's this notion of we can only bring certain things to God. And I think to follow on with what you're saying there, Drew, is what he's saying is that everything can be brought into this friendship with God. There's nothing that can't be brought. So like I can say, I'm so nervous when I open my emails. Can you help me with that? Right. Or I'm so nervous, just I'm not even sure why I'm nervous right now. And just right. or I have this trauma. How do I deal with this? And so what he's saying is everything is allowed. What do your yeah. students say about Brother Lawrence? Have you had an opportunity to bring your book or Brother Lawrence to your students? Well, to be honest with you, my students know that I write and everything like that. I teach at UC Berkeley. So one of the things we do talk about is meditation from a secular point of view, really. And so one of the things that I do tell my students is, I have written this book for you, actually. I used to translate, uh, and then I'll get around to your question. I used to translate for everybody my age and above. In other words, when I was 40 or so, I was translating for myself and people above, all my teachers and the people evaluating me. And now that I am not 40, I'm more like 60, I am looking and thinking, my students, they're living in this world, and there are many difficulties in this world, as we've all noticed. Yep. And can I give them this wisdom in a way that's accessible to them, true to Brother Lawrence and the tradition it comes from? So I tell them, I translated this with you in mind, and then I leave it up to them. And I hope that if they do come to it, that they will think one day, oh, that's that kind teacher. Because mm -hmm. really what I'm hoping is that the main thing that they get from me is that I listened to them and I was kind. I'm going to guess that they do get that from you. Yeah, I, I pray yeah, you're that. giving them quite a gift. Let me ask an, another question, doctor, a little bit off this topic. You've written a lot of stuff, translated a lot of stuff, and which is making it available to those of us that don't read these old languages. You did you, or any language <laughs> other than English. <laughs> and, and that is sketchy too, right? You've written on the cloud. You translated the cloud of unknowing, the practice of the presence, which we've been talking about. Hildegard, Nectic Child, Julian of Norwich, St. Benedict. There seems to be a pattern here. I'm not a detective, but I'm noticing a pattern. Can you talk a little bit about that? What is it? Uh, Are you that draws you to these people. Why aren't you translating Beowulf? Yeah, are you religious or something? <laughs> I'm a struggling human being. That's what it. That's what the detective Dennis will tell. What you'll discover. So, first of all, I absolutely love good language because we go back to Alfred of Innisham, who I translated for my dissertation. 
And then publish. Tom and I were just talking about Alfred. Yeah. Yeah. Alfred, he's the first translator of the Bible into English, you know. And the first thing that really draws me to these people, well, it's two things at once. Number one, they are darn good writers. So they make the language, whatever language it is, sing. (laughs) And then the second thing is that their style is communicative of their message, which is always love. And where there is love, there is peace. And the thing I have most needed in my life is peace. And so I've been very blessed, fortunate, and also many times have tried to juggle, sometimes successfully, sometimes not as successfully, different parts of my life to be able to immerse in these texts because there is no more intimate way of reading. It is like Lexio Divina on vitamins to translate because you translate and you think, boy, this is a tough passage. Did I get, not tough as in, am I going to make an A on it? Did I get it right? Although there is that aspect, but tough as in there's so many pieces here and I'm trying to bring this so many centuries forward and how do I stay true to the original writer and also make this clear for us today? So there's so many tough passages. And then you think, oh, I think I threaded that needle. And then you go to bed and you wake up and go, wait, I'm not quite sure. <laughs> there is a, there's like a continual re-entering the text and re-looking at it. And it always makes me think of Mary Oliver when she says instructions for living a life. Pay attention, right? Be astonished. Tell about it. That kind of uh, sums up translation. Ruminating as the desert yeah. for others would ruminate. Yeah, chewing the cud. It's they, I come from the country, so you just have to know if you stayed with me long enough, there would be a lot of metaphors that to, have to do with cows. But cows ruminate, chew their cud from three to six hours a day. And you know that in your bones if you grew up in the country like I did. And really, when you translate, you chew the cud of the text like a cow, really, over and come back to it over. I remember, just to tell you a fun story. When I was translating the cloud, the very first paragraph was just like, I've translated the whole thing, but I kept coming back to the first paragraph because it was both uh, syntactically and also semantically like difficult. So like the way the sentence went on forever and also what he was trying to say was very complicated. And I remember that was back in the day when, you know, you mailed off a paper copy of your book when you're mailing it to, so I was mailing it to Shambhala and I had done this a jillion times translating. So this wasn't like last minute, Carmen, I'm putting the manuscript into the envelope to mail it at the post office. And I saw that first paragraph and thought, wait, I know. (laughs) And I wrote back. I went back to my office and redid it. And then I looked at it and thought, it's still now. So in a way, it's kind of like poetry. I had a poetry editor tell me once, I'll take this poem and this poem, but this poem isn't still enough yet. And so you want it to be true to the original. You want to know if it says in foy, as Tom was saying, thank you, Tom, instead of in soy. But you also want it to be beautiful because the original is beautiful. You want readers to go, oh, this is like potato chips. I'd like another. You'd Mm -hmm. like them to enjoy the experience. Because I'll tell you, when you read The Cloud of Unknowing in the Middle English, it is meditative. When you read Alfred of Innisham, 
it's meditative. And also with Brother Lawrence, it's meditative. And you can't dip into their text without feeling you're being dipped into and soaking in love. Beautiful love, like my marsh walks. Really interesting. So that's what I'm hoping with this text, that anyone comes away thinking, not thinking, oh, that Carmen is smart, because really that's boring. I want them to come away thinking, I'm smart, the reader. I'm someone God loves. I'm someone who matters. I'm someone who can do this. So that's what the translation is. What my prayer is, is that people enter this text and they feel as if they are soaking in beautiful love. That's the hope. If we could get that notion of we're made in the image and likeness of God through these experiences, that, that would help the situation in our world. Yeah, we really resist being loved. Yeah. People tell you all, their li- all your life, I love you, I love you, I love you. And, all, and you say, you still love me? You're always waiting to hear it again. Someone tells you once, I hate you. You never ask, do you still hate me? You believe that. Oh yeah, okay. But love, we, gotta, we never can hear it enough. You know what? That's such a good point because when, you know, as a teacher, one of the things we get every semester are evals from students. I can tell you evals that I got in general. I'm very fortunate, touch wood, that students' evals are pretty positive. But do you know what I remember most, Dennis? I can almost quote to you a couple of evals, what the student said, and these were from 20 years ago. They weren't mean. Obviously, they weren't mean. But those are the ones that you remember, and you're right. And what I love about, if we're going back to Detective Dennis, what I love about everybody I've ever had the privilege and the blessing of translating and being translated by is that they remind me I am loved by God, that I am love, and that I can aspire to become more loving. I think you said it very well when you went back to practice makes perfect because the very root of the word perfect, I like the verb perfect over perfection, the noun, because to perfect means to do it again. Mm -hmm. And so I like the fact that Tom also points out we need reminders that we are loved. And so what I've tried to do with God's grace is to put out there some books that will remind us that we are loved right now as we are with whatever we have going on right now. We are loved and that we can start where we are and we can, we are, will always be accepted because God is love and we are, as Tom said, made in God's image. We want to be love in the world, right? Is the next step. It's never late if it's, if we live in the present, you can't miss the bus. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Yeah. All right. So, Doctor, we always ask this question of all of our guests. Imagine, if you will, there's somebody standing in the door of the church, of this hypothetical church. They don't know whether they're going in or coming out. They can't make up their mind whether they should stay or not, or whether they should leave. What would you say to such a person? I would say, remember the words of Jesus who said that, We don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And where can they find that? And then in their heart to decide where they think they can find that. I would say that then for me, what that has done is also widen my understanding of the church to be wherever I am, whoever I'm with. 
I hope that's what you're looking for. Yeah, that's very nice. That's a beautiful answer. I believe it may have been the first answer that somebody quoted Jesus in over a year. Mm-hmm. We've gotten great answers, wonderful yeah. answers, insightful answers. Isn't that cheating, quoting Jesus? Don't you have to come up with your own stuff? Quoting Jesus. (laughs) No, I I think quoting Jesus is always good. One of the things that reminds me, y'all talking about the quote of Jesus, is that one of the things that in the spiritual formation of Brother Lawrence that was a given was the fact that he did practice Lexio Divina or sacred reading. So he would have done it when on the occasions when he did sing the Psalms in services, Mm -hmm. but also he would have, because he... Joseph says he loved the Gospels, so he would have spent a lot of time in eating the Scripture. Right. Don't want to overlook that, because one of the things I keep coming back to in my own life is the practice of steeping in Scriptures and in other wise words. It could even be a Mary Oliver poem for me. Yeah, okay. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you've written up on translated and absorbed all these resources, the cloud and Julian, Benedict and all this stuff. Is there anything else besides the practice of the presence that really has served you, something that has become part of your personal practice, something you would recommend to a friend? Yes. First, I'm going to speak to why the practice of the presence very briefly, and that is that it helped me to see that having a conversation with God is not silly. Because the way Brother Lawrence explains it, and the world we live in is very intellectual sometimes, and the way Brother Lawrence explains it, he makes it very alive, very down-to-earth, very ordinary, very real, that this is just something you can do. The other practice that I would say is the one you alluded to earlier, Dennis, the cloud of unknowing, and having a sacred word, and that led me to centering prayer. and so. I can also practice the cloud of unknowings coming back to this one word and collecting or recollecting my thoughts that way in a half a second. So sometimes I might practice the presence using my sacred word, if that makes sense. Because ordinarily you practice the presence in these brief moments and people look at centering prayer being these 20 minute sessions or something. That's good too. I think because I also do walking meditation. That can be an hour and a half. I also think translation is a practice for you. But I also sometimes, in addition to practicing centering prayer and also contemplative prayer, a knowing style, is I will do centering prayer in a half second. And that's something for the listeners to understand in all this is that, because a lot of people have trouble. You say, okay, sit here for 20 minutes and do this. Oh, just that's just the torture for a lot of people. Whereas you can say to them, well, I can show you walking meditation if you're an antsy person that isn't good at sitting, and that'll be a little bit better. But just the idea to even for setting prayer, I've told people, sit for one minute, one minute, put a timer on, sit for a minute, and then you can gradually increase it. And eventually you'll be able to do the 20 minutes twice a day that they recommend. But if you do it for a minute, there's no, that's good. Or if you use the, a lot of times I'll do it standing in the line at the store instead of getting angry with people fumbling around or whatever, I will just invoke my prayer word or the Jesus prayer. I use a lot of different things. It's not whatever's at hand in my mind, but it can be very short. And that's the great thing about Brother Lawrence. He's telling you, this is a short, quick, micro 
meeting, a micro meeting. It's not like I have to stop the activity or I can't listen to what you're saying or whatever. So there's gold in them in our hills. There's a lot of different ways of doing it. And uh, yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. I think a lot of people have one practice and this is my practice. And I just, I can't light on anything. It's I like having this buffet, this tool belt, like Batman's utility belt. And depending on what I need, I pull something out and they all work. See, that's the thing. It's not, well, this is better than that one. So yeah, I appreciate it. I have a Batman's utility belt too, because (laughs) I also do the Jesus prayer. When I first started out with centering prayer and stuff, I felt like a failure because I was like, this sitting for 20 minutes is just so painful at the beginning. And then I just realized as I kept practicing my own way, that was the point was even the desire to pray is praying and pray the way you can, not the way you can't. Right. And so with the grace of God, I find my way through. That's such a, that's actually one of my favorite stories. And what gives me such hope about Brother Lawrence's practice of the presence is you start seeing your thoughts as weather and you start realizing that your thoughts are the material as you do your work and that the thoughts are, they're not the enemy. They're part of being human. You can work with these. In a general, and then the other thing I would like to say is over and over, Brother Lawrence says gently in his writing. He says, We do this, we return gently. So, against that thing of I've got to make an A, I've got to pass the test, I've got to do well, is that thing of it's a relationship and do it, return gently. So, and that's just what all of you wise new friends have been saying. This is a great book. And if you've ever thought, I'd like to read The Mystics, John of the Cross is too hard or whatever. Okay, this is where you start. This is doable, understandable, and the only thing that will stop you is you. The Practice of the Presence by Dr. Butcher. Buy it. Thank you so much, Dr. Butcher. It was yes, a thanks for being yes, with us. Indeed. This has been amazing. Yeah, you all yeah. are simply such a joy. Well, we're Mm. simple, so. Mm. (laughs) I have never had so much fun. This was like, wow. Special thanks to El Jefe, Paul Snatchko, and our editor, David Dalt. The Deacon's Pod is powered by the Paulus Fathers. You can find us anywhere you get your podcasts, and of course, at our own website, www.deaconspod.com. That's D-E-A-C-O-N-S. With an S, Deacons, plural, pod, all one word, dot com. And of course, we'd love to hear your comments at our email address, which is deaconspod, again, with an S, deacons, at paulist.org. That's P-A-U-L-I-S-T dot org. Love to hear from you. That's our offering. We thank you for being with us. On behalf of our colleagues at the Missionary Society of St. Paul the Apostle, We wish you a future brighter than any past. Till next time.